Well, this morning I want to continue in the series that Pastor Eric has been preaching on a beautiful church and looking at the church in Antioch and how their life together in Christ as the body of Christ provided a beautiful witness to others in the ancient world and then you know, for us to think about us here at LifeRidge too. How do our lives together provide a witness to others? And I would affirm what Pastor Eric has been saying, that yes, indeed, here at LifeBridge, this is a beautiful church, a beautiful community. How can we continue in that, and how can we deepen that beauty of life together? So I want to, let's start by looking at a few words about the church in Antioch, one of the things they did, and we'll kind of come around to that again, but I'd like this to be in our mind as we talk through some other things in the sermon. Uh, from Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the aspect of the beautiful life together that we want to look at this morning is living an open-handed life. So just in that gesture, let me ask you as we get started, what do you think that means? What does it mean to you to live an open-handed life? Just any short responses, word or phrase? Generosity. Mm -hmm. Don't hold on to possessions too tightly. Mm -hmm. Open heart as well. Good. Thanks, Chris. Surrender. Surrender. Yeah. Flexibility. Good. Good. Well, somebody else who's going to help show us what an open-handed life looks like. Don't worry. She was voluntold, but she was voluntold ahead of time. So Christina's going to come up here. Um, if you can get the jar with the filberts in. Do you know what a filbert is? I did not know what a filbert was until I looked it up. What, what is it, Rachel? It's a hazelnut. You're exactly right. So we have a jar here full of hazelnuts, just like in the story in Aesop's fables. Uh, there was a boy who was given permission to put his hand into a pitcher to get some filberts, which we know now are hazelnuts. But he took such a great fistful, or tried to take such a great fistful, that he could not draw his hand out again. There he stood unwilling to give up a single filbert, and yet unable to get them all out at once. Vexed and disappointed, he began to cry. My boy, said his mother, be satisfied with half the nuts you have taken. You will easily get your hand out. Then perhaps you may have some more filberts some other time. And the moral that was associated, now it depends which version of the story you read. The one that I found was that 
Greed leads to trouble. Yeah, you've got some out. Yeah, you can have them if you'd like. I'm not sure why he was really trying to get after. I tried a couple, and like raw and unsalted, they're, they're not the most appetizing that there is, so I, I don't know. But you, you get the point, right? You, you reach in, you grab everything you can, you try and take too much, and you can get stuck. Now, I've heard, um, I may have to lean on some of you who are better hunters than I am, um, Southeast Asia, there can be a monkey trap where there's like a hole in the coconut and they reach in to grab something that's in there, like rice in there, and they can't get their arm out and they're unwilling to let go of what they have, and so it's a way to trap them. Or, and a little closer to home, that maybe raccoons exhibit some similar behavior, like if there's a shiny object in something, like you can actually trap them where they reach in to try and grab it. Now, I've not tried this. I'm not a coon hunter. If somebody can enlighten me whether that's true afterwards, let me know. But the underlying point you get, right? When we try and grasp over after too much, it can keep us trapped. We can get ourselves in trouble when we are too greedy or we're trying to hold on to things with that clenched hand rather than living life with an open hand. I also want us to take a look then at what this means through God's people, and we'll look at a couple stories, uh, examples within the Bible. Um, the first one, we're going to get to Deuteronomy 15, but first of all, a little bit of context. The people of Israel had traveled to Egypt to escape a famine, and eventually they fell out of favor with the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and they became slaves. Uh, kind of a brutal existence, to be honest with you. But God used Moses to lead his people up out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and shortly after that, they traveled through the desert to Mount Sinai. And that's the picture you see here, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to meet with God on top of the mountain. Uh, Moses receives what there? Where are the Bible scholars at? What did Moses receive from God at the, on the top of Mount Sinai? Ten commandments and other laws and customs and everything that it meant to be the people of God and how to be faithful. And we kind of summarize those, um, the words from Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. All right, so now let's, let's go to Deuteronomy 15, uh, verses 7 through 11. Now remember, these are part of the instructions that God has passed on down to Moses then to share with all of God's people, part of what it meant to be obedient to God. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it might be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, 
and your eye look grudgingly on your brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. To live open-handed means that you will give to brothers and sisters in need when you have the ability to do so. Now, in that passage, it talked about the year of release. Well, that was something that God had worked into the commandments, into the instructions for God's people, that there was a Sabbath year. Every seventh year was a year of rest, a year of rest for the land. If you were a farmer, you let it lay fallow for the land to recover and have rest, just like God rested on the seventh day in creation. But here's the other thing that was supposed to happen in that seventh year. Like in Israel, every family got their own plot of land. And it was up to you to farm that, to make it productive. You were given that to start out with. Well, maybe there was bad weather. Maybe you were sick. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe your family just fell on hard times. Or, you know, maybe dad was a little lazy and just didn't do everything he should. Whatever, for whatever reason, there were people in Israel who had need. They, they needed help, all right? Well, you were supposed to then not withhold that from your brother or sister, but, but give them what they needed. You were to lend to them, but here's the catch. Every seventh year, that debt was wiped away. Now, sounds pretty good, except the catch was, who wants to lend to somebody when you know there's only a year left before it all gets forgiven, right? Like, okay, you got six years to pay me back. Okay, you're probably going to be able to do that. I'll, I'll lend it to you now. But what if we're now just a year away? We're getting close to this year of release. That's why it says don't be tempted to begrudge this to your brother or sister that comes to you, and why you might be tempted to withhold it, because you know you're not just loaning that, it actually might be a gift that is not going to come back to you. All right, so that's what this year of release is talking about there. Any of you kind of think about that? Like, isn't it a fairly common human response, though? Like, if I give you something, I, here, Daryl, if I give you what's in my wallet, like, I probably want something back, right? And, and if I don't get it from you, not going to make me happy or pleased about the relationship. Like, there's expectations that we have, and that's, that's not necessarily anything wrong with that. That's sort of our human nature and, and our, you know, our expectation. There's going to be give and take back and forth, Right? Why is it sin, then, to withhold something? Daryl needs something, and I see that I could give it to him, and I withhold it, knowing that he's not going to be able to give it back to me. Why does that qualify as sin when we're talking about God's people? Well, it might make sense if in your own thinking you own what you have, and it's yours to do with what you want. 
But in the people of Israel's case, the land ultimately belonged not to them, but to God. Yes, in their conquest of Canaan, they had to fight many battles, right? Uh, Yet over and over again, the book of Joshua is clear that they were able to win not because of their own strength or how good they were at fighting, but because of the strength and might and power of God. Take the city of Jericho. How did the city of Jericho fall? It fell because the Israelites were just better fighters? No, they followed what God told them to do, which was to march around the city once a day for six days. And the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And then the walls miraculously fell down. Like God broke down the walls that were in front of them, essentially handing the city to them. It wasn't because they had earned it so much as it was. They were trusting in God's power to give them what he had promised them. Their wealth and good fortune was really God's wealth and a result of God's blessing. To live with a closed hand is to constantly calculate what is in your own best interest and to hold on to as much of it as you can because you might need it later to satisfy your future needs. To live with an open hand is to feel compassion toward others in need and give out of your excess so that others can have enough to live. To live with an open hand is to trust God to satisfy your future needs instead of hoarding what you have so that you don't need to trust, on, trust in God or anyone or anything else in the future. You hear that? Like, what happened, like, going back to this conquest of the land when the Israelites said, okay, I see how this works, Yeah, let's just go ahead and do this. And they don't wait for God to lead them to go in front of them. Well, they get defeated. They they run back from battle. (coughs) It's that dependence on God. And that works that way in our lives, too. Whenever we try and say, okay, now I'm going to take care of this myself. Like, I'm going to save up enough that I don't need to trust. I don't need to worry about what others can and can't do for me. Like, I'm going to be the one who's responsible for my own needs. We also get in trouble because we can forfeit the blessing of God. We can forfeit (laughs) that open-handedness and how God deals with us. Placing our trust in God means that we can live with an open hand. It's also the importance of the second part of Deuteronomy 15.10 that we read, where it says, Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all that you undertake. In other words, if you give your brother or sister what they need out of your excess today, then God will assume the responsibility to bless you in your future undertakings. When you trust God with your future needs, God will be faithful in providing for you that you do not need to be stingy with what you have now. Furthermore, being satisfied with having your current needs met and not trying to hoard resources for the future was a direct lesson that God had already taught his people as they came up out of Egypt. After crossing the Red Sea and entering into the desert, the people began to what? Every day, celebrate how good, how good God was, right? They never had any second thoughts. 
wrong, right? Like, it doesn't take long. They're wandering through the desert, and they start to say, hmm, my belly's rumbling. Where's the food? (laughs) Where's the buffet, God? Like, they actually go on to say, like, maybe it was better for us if we had just stayed in slavery in Egypt, because I know life was rotten there, but at least there was a meat pot that there was bread to eat. God, what are you doing with us? So, God provides manna, right? We know this story. Um, manna literally means kind of like what you call it. Like, didn't know what this stuff was, but it suddenly miraculously was there. A bread-like substance, they thought, fell from heaven. It was kind of out there like the dew, and it tasted kind of like honey. Okay, the thing with manna is the Israelites were to collect a portion each day and a double portion on the sixth day so they didn't have to gather any on the Sabbath. However, when some of them did gather too much, like this is the human nature part, right? God says, you know, just take enough for today. Don't worry about it. It'll be there tomorrow. Some of them were like, eh, I don't know. I'm going to hedge my bets. And they collected more than what they could eat on, in one day. Guess what happened to it the next day? It was rotten, and it became worm food. So I know this is kind of a graphic image, but like there were maggots crawling around in this stuff when they tried to put it away for too long and brought it back out on the table. I don't think that was just an accident or by mistake or happenstance, but this was God teaching God's people to have enough for today. Let me worry about tomorrow. You've got my provision for today. Don't try and hoard things for yourself. Don't try and accumulate or amass all this wealth for yourself so you can take care of yourself, but continue to rely on me to provide for you every day. All right, let's keep going. Let's see how some of this open-handed living, how this open-handed life translates into the New Testament church. And I want to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount starting with Matthew 5, uh, 19 through 15, Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Okay? And here we have some parallels. I don't know if you stopped to notice this before, but God giving instructions to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and that was the basis for their life together. Jesus also up on top of a mountain giving instructions, maybe not the Ten Commandments, but he gives the Beatitudes this time, And it's also followed for instructions of what God's people's life should look like as they they live together in faithfulness to him. So Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would it change the meaning for you if we said, give us today our manna? Our daily bread, our manna, enough for, for today, not hoarding for tomorrow. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Remember, living with an open hand in Deuteronomy 15, that willingness to lend to others, even when you know that you might have to just forgive their debts. 
It also reminds us of our dependence upon God for our own forgiveness. To live open-handed means to forgive others rather than holding things against them. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. You know, Peter, he thinks he's got the lesson, right? Like, he's going to show how, how, how much he's got. He was listening to Jesus, all right? He comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I think he's ready to pat himself on the back like seven times. That's pretty many, right? I think I've got this lesson down. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. More than you can count, more than you can keep track of. I know some of you might be able to hold a grudge, but even at about 462, you might start to lose count. Right? Like, it's not about the specific number here, but part of living with an open hand is not holding those things against others. Like, whereas you roll, uh, uh, rose, like, this open-heartedness is a part of living life with an open hand. Being open-handed means forgiving others again and again and again because, Jesus illustrates this in in his next parable, I mean, that's how God forgives us. God forgives us like that. Um, we could also look at Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is interesting. Like so far, it's like, okay, this is like the peace talk, and this is what we're talking about here. But then notice this other thing that gets included here. It's not the only place in Scripture where these things are brought together, both the economic part and this Part of living open-handed is being, yes, generous, but it's also having a generosity of spirit that forgives and lives at peace with others. The other part that Jesus ends here with is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Sound familiar by now? Maybe it also helps us to think about just the symbol of an open hand. Yes, it's about generosity or, or holding your hand out or giving. It's not about holding on to your possessions. But from ancient times, when you greeted someone, it was customary to show that you were not a threat by holding an open palm. Like you see, I don't have a weapon in my hand. Like to greet someone with an open hand is to say, look, I'm here in peace. I'm offering you greetings. I'm not a threat to you. Um, I, you know, okay, so Google searches is looking around different places, all right, so who knows. But find out this piece of information, like this is part of the, like the Roman greeting was to clasp one another on the forearms rather than just with a handshake. There are some who think that that might have been related to the fact that sometimes they would carry hidden daggers, you know, kind of strapped to their forearms here. But they offer that kind of a to say, look, I don't have anything hidden here, and that's why you would grasp 
one another on those forearms. To live in an open-handed way is to also live a life of peace. To say, look, I'm not a threat. I'm not here to retaliate. I'm not here to do you harm, but to offer blessing. Um, yeah, this is maybe going back a little bit, but kind of continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. To me, that sounds a little bit like the manna situation. It's, it's not decaying here or, or getting eaten by worms, but it's rusting or it's stolen. Like, there are limits when you try and hoard that stuff and put it back for yourself. Use it instead to build up treasure in heaven. Or in Matthew 6, uh, verses 25 through 34, um, starting at verse 25, in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then Jesus goes on to describe how God cares for the birds, provides food for them cares for the flowers of the field and they you know gives them a beauty which we're appreciating right now some of these spring flowers pop up from earth just how beautiful they are and the colors are wonderful and god has created them that way and given them that to wear if god is taking care of the natural world we see god's providence in all of these things then why don't we think that god can also take care of us so the conclusion then in this part of the passage from verses 31 and 30 through 33, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows you will need them, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Similar again to Deuteronomy 15.10, do these things and you can trust in God's blessing. To live an open-handed life is not to worry about tomorrow, but to trust in God to provide. To live an open-handed life is to seek first the kingdom of God and do what is right, and then seeing God bless you and provide all that you need. Uh, Psalm 145 verse 16 says, you open your hand uh, about God. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, just like Moses on Mount Sinai, giving his people instructions for what a beautiful life together should look like. And we get then these glimpses in the, in the early church of how people were living this out. Right, how it looked as they gathered. And we see it again in Acts chapter 2. Um, we, yeah, let me pull that up. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, for some who might look at this and say, now, why is there, like, this economic stuff being connected with, like, faith and decision to follow Jesus? Well, if you know your, New, or your, your Old Testament and you look back there, like, this is all a part of it. This is what it means when you start to follow Jesus. You no longer are just living for yourself, but the love that God pours through us opens our hands, opens our hearts to those around us. So it's natural to expect that as people started following Jesus, you see the same thing happen in the New Testament that God told them to do in the Old Testament. The same things that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, they were beginning to live out to not hold back things for themselves, but as people had need and as they had the ability to do so, they gave. Okay. Finally, we get to the beautiful church in Antioch. Let's look again at Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30. I told you we would circle around here again, right? Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. Now, I won't spend too much time on this, but apparently part of what happened when they gathered together is that there were people who had a word from the Lord who would then share it. Now, you had to be careful and make sure those people were trustworthy and that their words were biblical, and, um, and yet there was a place for that happening within their worship. One of these words that came to them is, look, our brothers and sisters are going to be in trouble because there's going to be this great big famine. So what did they do? Well, it's their tough luck. <laughs> Too bad. Maybe you should have moved to Antioch when you had the chance. No. They had compassion. They were living an open-handed life together, not just within their own community, but even beyond their community, they gave. They gave in anticipation of a need. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now this to me is also interesting because they didn't just pick anybody to take the gift. Like, they also were generous, not just in their finances, but in their leadership, of releasing their leaders to be the ones who took this gift back. Don't you think they could have kept, kept them in Antioch? Wouldn't they have appreciated them being present on site to continue in their leadership of the movement of the church there? Absolutely, but part of living with this open hand was allowing their leaders to be the one who would take this gift that they had collected back to Judea and to share it there. So what about us today? Right? Beautiful picture. Old Testament, New Testament. How do we live it out today? Well, in part, I already see it happening, right? Like, you all care for one another by helping to meet one another's needs. And that's not just something extra, like that is part of the good news. That is part of what happens when you give your life to Christ and you follow him. His love fills you so that you have compassion on others. And if you have it, then you give it. 
You come alongside others. Keep it up, right? Um, I, I do want to share one story, I think, by way of illustration to honor my father, who just turned 75 on Friday, and telling you that, probably he would not feel that was honoring. Um, but I do want to tell you something about him. As I was growing up, um, my grandfather grew up, at least some of his years in the, in the Depression and years following it. It was, it was tough. You didn't always have extra around. And I remember he got so, he would get so frustrated at my dad uh, because we had some neighbors, and, and their last name was not Stutzman, so just relax. They, they were very good neighbors. These are also good neighbors, but my grandfather would just get so frustrated at my dad because, well, why are you going to give them more hay or corn? They haven't paid for what they got last season, right? Or why are you going to let them use you know, the, the equipment, the tractor, the baler, the whatever it was again, like they've never paid you the last time, like they don't have anything to offer you to borrow of theirs in return. He would get so frustrated with my dad. But my dad, and this is, I think he was living life with an open hand. Like we didn't have a whole lot when I was growing up, that's before we got that sweet, sweet uh, Dutch Corp money rolling in, right? <laughs> We're struggling as a farmer, he didn't have a whole lot. But there was enough. And when there was some extra and he had something, he was willing to allow a neighbor to have it, to use it. And, and that made an impression on me growing up of that's what it means to live an open-handed life. Now, we don't all live on a farm. Probably very few of us, if any of us do at this point. But what are the places, not just with our money, but with our time that we can give? that we can live life open-handed as we have the ability to do so, to give out of our extra so that others can have their needs satisfied. Of course, the, the ultimate expression of this happening is Jesus dying on the cross, right? Not just hands open, but arms spread wide to offer us forgiveness. And I love these verses, and I'll just close with this from 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Right? That's a high calling. Like, okay, maybe some of you were with me up to this point saying, yeah, I've got some extra, I don't mind giving that away. This ups the ante a little bit more. Remembering that Christ died for us, would we also be willing to die for brothers or sisters? Verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And when that happens, there is indeed a beautiful life together in Christ and a beautiful church operating as Jesus intended. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you, first of all, for the blessings that you have given to us. Even when it seems like we do not have much, 
Yet we recognize that you are faithful, you are good, and that you have provided for us to allow us to even get to today. And Lord, we pray that we would have the courage, that we would have the love that you showed us first to not hold back what really belongs to you. That when we see a brother, when we see a sister in need, that we can give generously. That we can forgive generously. That we can walk together in this just beautiful coming together of supporting one another, doing it in your presence and in your name as a witness to everyone who is around us what life could be like when you are at the center of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.